Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. We've all heard of climbing the corporate ladder, but my guest today, Emmett Gibney, takes this concept to a whole new level. He shares his remarkable journey from customer support to the role of interim CEO at Rewardful. We discuss about this transition and the expansion of the company under new private equity ownership, how Emmett stepped into the void that was left by the original founders, and just how incredibly impactful referral and affiliate programs can be for us indie hackers. From setting up the perfect referral program to identifying the ideal affiliate profile for your business, we just unpack it all, the tools and tactics you need it's all in there. And then we dive into the role of building and contributing to communities for maximum impact as well. A big shout out at this point to Acquire.com, the sponsor of this episode. More on that later. Now, here's Emmett. Emmett, thanks so much for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about your journey with Rewardful. What's your job there? How did you get it? And what does a day in the life look like? Sure. Um, so my journey with Rewardful actually goes back to before I actually started technically working for Rewardful. Um, so I've been I've been working for Rewardful since uh, I want to say March of 2022. I think so, maybe a little bit more than a year and a half. Um, and uh, but before that, so back in. Uh, I hate to, to pull up the, the P word, but back bef around the pandemic times, um, I, I had been working for a, a, a travel company here in, in Dublin. Um, and uh, I've been working there for a few years and then the pandemic hits and like the absolute worst industry to, to be in when the pandemic hit. And so the company went from like 120 people to 10 in a, you know, in a couple of weeks kind of thing. Right. And I was one of the people who got, who got laid off. Um, and, uh, so, you know, trying to figure out like, oh, you like, what am I going to do? And hiring just like, you know, ground to a halt. Um, and, uh, I, I kind of, in a way I was like, you know, I'm just going to take it easy, do, do a little bit of like coding and, you know, brush up my Ruby on Rails skills. And it was actually like, I know this wasn't the case for a lot of people, and maybe people don't want to hear this, but that first sort of part of the pandemic was actually a very nice time for me um, because, you know, it was kind of stress free, you know, no work. And uh, um, uh, we were having a, a kid uh, coming, you know, a few months later. And so it was sort of a last hurrah of, of freedom before parenthood began. Um, anyways, uh, I had uh, known the guys who founded Rewardful for uh, a number of years, maybe close to 10 years at that point in time. And uh, I reached out to Kyle and Brady, who were the Kyle Fox and Brady Cassidy. They're the founders of Rewardful and just said like, hey, like, do you need help with anything? You know, I'm, I'm unemployed and, and uh, have some some spare time. Um, and they're like, yeah, like we're just drowning on support. Can you come and help us with support? And, uh, so I, I just hopped into intercom and, and helped them out with support and, you know, helping people figure out how to get the, the affiliate tracking installed and, um, did that with them for a few months. And then, uh, our kid arrived and I said, okay, you know, I'm just going to focus on, on helping out at home for the next little bit. Um, when, uh, now that the kids arrived and, um, and then I got a, I got a job, um, shortly thereafter. Cause you know, you need to have an income if you've got a, a kid, um, and, and so I, I worked a real sort of classic corporate job for another kind of year and a bit and, um, did not enjoy my time there, 
but it was like, you know, for personal reasons, we needed to like get a mortgage and needed to have, you know, a, uh, kind of a, a stable, stable job. Um, and, uh, once that was settled, then I, I reached back out to, to Colin Brady and said, Hey, like, you know, I'd love to work with you guys, um, on a, on a permanent basis. And, um, my background professionally was in sort of product management and, and, um, uh, uh, a bit of like content marketing and things like that. Anyways, reached out to the guys and, um, they, uh, they said, yeah, sure. Like, you know, we've, we've, we've got, uh, you know, we've got a spot for you and went and joined them in, in March of 2022. Um, and for the first call it eight or nine months that I was there was primarily working in kind of a, a, a marketing, uh, capacity. Um, and as some background context, uh, Rewardful had been acquired by a private equity company or group um, called SaaS Group, which is currently the the owner of of Rewardful. Um, you can go to SaaS.group if you want to learn more about um, SaaS Group. And if you're interested in selling your SaaS company, you can go check them out. And so they had acquired the company uh, a few months before I had joined the company full-time. Um, and so... Come November 2022, Kyle and Brady had finished their, um, I think it's a earnout period is sort of the technical term. Um, and they decided that they wanted to, to move on. They'd been working on Rewardful for, you know, five years, mostly like on the side of, of their full-time jobs. And so they were pretty tired and, uh, decided they, they wanted to, you know, take a, a bit of a breather. I think Kyle had just had a, had just had a kid and, um, decided like, you know, he wanted to take a bit of a, a step back. And so November, um, at that point in time, there was, I think five or six of us, Colin Brady then left. And so our team went from six to four and the company was going, growing quite rapidly. Um, and, uh, so we're within the, 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 the group, not just within rewardful, but within the group trying to figure out like, okay, you know, what do we do now? We've lost the CTO and the effectively CEO of the company. And, uh, our, our, one of our, I guess, lead developers, I don't know what his, his title was actually at the time, but uh, Chris Cottom, he stepped up to be the CTO. And then we started, uh, effectively like a external CEO search, um, and then I moved up to being head of product, um, which is sort of a portion of, of Brady's role. Um, and, uh, but in the interim in intervening months, um, I basically started taking over a lot of sort of the CEO type, um, functions, you know, like handling all the stuff in terms of finance and reporting up to the, up to the board. Um, and, uh, like all the sort of, you know, firefighting that you, you do in, in that type of role. And, uh, once a quarter, um, we basically have a presentation that we, we give to the guys that run uh SAS group in terms of how we're performing and what we're doing and initiatives and things like that. And, uh, I basically said to them, like, listen, I've been basically, you know, running the, the business for the last few months. I know we've got this external CEO search. Would you mind if we pause that? let me continue to, to operate in this role for the next several months. The place hasn't burnt down yet. If it doesn't burn down, you know, within the year kind of thing, can I, can I do this, you know, on a permanent basis? And they said, yeah, we'll let you, we'll let you do that. Um, and, uh, that's, that's where we are. We are now. I'm sort of an interim, uh, CEO of, of the business. My title is technically head of product. Um, but in terms of, you know, your question around, 
on a day-to-day basis, you know, what does, what does my day look like? You know, probably 5% or 10% of my, of my job is actually product related. There's, there's so many other aspects of the business. So like, you know, today I was, I was reviewing a, a new template for our data processing agreement. Every now and then we get requests from people who are in Europe who want a data processing agreement. That's sort of a requirement under, under GDPR when you're working with, um, what we would be technically classed for a lot of com- our customers as a, a sub processor. So, um, uh, you know, diving into, to marketing, we're starting to do a lot more content marketing. Um, I used to run a, a video production company in sort of a, a past life. So content and, and particularly like video content is, is something that I'm, I'm pretty, uh, comfortable in. Um, uh, we're, we're looking to hire new people. So, you know, putting together, putting together job specs, um, uh, occasionally, you know, jumping into product team meetings with uh, the developers and our CTO, um, you know, figuring out like which features should we be doing next? What should we be building? How should we be building it? Um, a lot of customer calls, demos and, and uh, sales calls, um, you know, and like, I think I think it was last Monday or something like that. Um, I had eight customer demos in one wow. in one day. So that's that was a, a very busy day. So there's a lot of that almost every day. There's at least one sort of customer demo that that'll be doing. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of sort of firefighting, the little things that, that come up that you, you know, you need to address. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's a very varied, um, role. Um, and, uh, it's kind of the way I, I like it. I, I'm, I'm more of a, a generalist generalist. I like breadth as a, as opposed to depth. Um, and then, uh, you know, the guys that, that run SaaS group, they run like 14 or 15 other companies. And as a result, they kind of leave us at it as long as things are, you know, going well, they, they give us enough rope to hang our, ourselves with. And uh, so far we haven't. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, a little bit of sort of my journey and, and what I'm doing at, uh, at Rewardful and, um, yeah, what my sort of day to day looks like. Wow, that's a that's. Thank you for sharing all of this. That's a wonderful and very rare example of just growing into the role of CEO in a business. It just feels like I usually like if you have an external one, they they come in and they take over, and it's kind of a top down approach. But your yeah. whole journey with the the business and the founders is a, is a very organic one. Starting out at support, getting into product, into marketing, and then you're moving into yeah. just doing the job that needs to be done because there's a void that needs to be filled. That has a that has a very indie hacker like touch to it, you know. Like it, it's just it, you do the things that need to be done because that's the way forward. It is really cool to hear, and um, the fact that it's a very varied job. Well, yeah, that's that's just this, the role of a CEO in a in a small SaaS business like this, right? You have to do everything. I I really appreciate that you mentioned SaaS Group here because you said they're running like what fifteen, eighteen other companies. They are, or they they almost bought mine. Like we were actually in, <laughs> in conversations with them selling feedback panda. We went, we went for, with a different PE group at, at, a, at that point, but we actually had uh, negotiations about that too. When, when we sold back in 2019, right? That was the time that we talked about uh, selling our productivity online teacher business. So I, I have a cool. relationship with SAS group and it's, it's interesting to see how far they have come since then as well. Like that is that the last couple of years they've been busy. If that's the, the current portfolio that they're operating yeah. and they probably. 
probably would cold. have been about three or four or something like that at, at yeah. that point in time. It, yeah. it wasn't that much. It, it was, we, we would have been one of the first. It didn't align because we were, we were in a market that, you know, wasn't that, that interesting apparently, or the way that we ran the company was different. But n- no matter why it didn't work out, it's cool to see that it worked out for Rewardful. And anyway, that also worked out for you, right? And, and I got very lucky, like, you know, you're saying in terms of this natural progression, like, yes, it, it, it was this kind of this natural progression in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, I, I was lucky in a lot of respects in that the opportunity presented itself. Um, and uh, I, I was lucky that they were they were open to the idea. You know, they could have very easily said, well, no, <laughs> we're we're going to continue <laughs> right. our search to to find someone external. You know, they've just spent you know X millions of of dollars to to buy the company, and we're going to protect that investment by you know getting a steady hand who's done this kind of stuff before. Who are you, right? Um, and uh, I mean, technically, still they could do that, right? Like they might decide um, that uh, you know they want to find someone with with more experience and so forth. Um, but, uh, no, I've been, I've been very lucky. Um, maybe some additional context too is, um, prior to, uh, rewardful Kyle Fox and I were actually co-founders on another startup, which was a healthcare software startup. Um, and I don't know if you've had any experience or know anyone who's had experience in the healthcare industry, whether in software or, or otherwise. Um, but it is, it is a brutal industry for startups, um, and in, in, anyone who's ever, you know, subsequently come to me and asked about like advice in terms of healthcare software and uh, as startups and stuff, I've said basically just run, yeah. like just don't. Cause it's, it's just such like a, uh, enterprise sales cycle. But, um, the point of, of bringing this up is just that, um, Kyle and I had, had worked together previously. So, you know, um, you know, wasn't coming in just like totally cold and having no kind of working relationship, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I was, I've been super lucky and the guys at SAS group, um, have been super like supportive and not micromanaging everything we're trying to do and which they totally could have. And I've, I've heard of, of cases of, you know, PE groups that that's how they kind of operate. And, uh, so we've been really lucky that they've been awesome. Yeah, I was wondering because you, usually when you sell a, a software business, when you're just like a couple founders and you build it to a meaningful, but you know, not like enterprise level, just amount of MRR or ARR, and you then you sell it. There's a kind of shift in the incentives and the goals that you may have had compared to the goals of a private equity group. Did you find yeah. that you had to to make like significant changes that the original founders probably would not have made in that business? Um, no, I don't think so. Not, not yet. Like I, I think, I think part of the, part of the reason why they, they left was, um, and I, maybe I, I should not say anything just cause like, I don't actually hundred percent know what, what's in their brains, but like, I think there's a little bit of a, a different, um, kind of, uh, not so much skill set, but like preference in terms of different stage to be yeah. working at and the oh, types of things you have to do are yeah. are very different. Like that very early stage when you're building like from zero that, you know, what's that Peter Thiel book, zero to one, like that's the hardest kind of phase. And and I think there's a certain kind of um uh skill set and like comfortability with chaos and and this kind of thing. Um and I I I think like 
you know, Kyle and Brady are really good in, in, in that stage. And I, I can see like they've already gone and, and started new projects. They've got a, a new project they're working on called Review Rocket, which is basically like helping SaaS companies get, uh, reviews on, you know, all the different sort of software review platforms. Um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of that, like, oh, next stage that, you, you know, um, we certainly haven't done anything where it was like, oh, we wouldn't have done that. Or like, um, the team has grown a bit, like, you know, we've added three people, which is not a huge amount of people, but when you go from four to three, you're, you know, you've almost yep. doubled the size of your team. Um, right. and you know, we're doing a lot more hiring. Um, that's a, that's a big one. Like things really change in terms of the dynamic when you add more people. Um, and then there's other stuff that's, it's, that comes in that, it's not so much about the the stage that rewardful is and and, and the stage that rewardful is going to, but a lot of it is actually about the stage that SaaS Group is in and the stage they're going into. You know, we've gone from four people to three people, which is you know whatever. But SaaS Group in September we had like a all um, portfolio get together in in uh, in Lisbon. And, um, there was a hundred ish people in that came, maybe 120 are the, in the, were in the total group. And now I wouldn't, I think we're at like 220 or 30 or maybe 50. I don't know. Right. And so we're meeting, we're meeting again in September, this time in Barcelona. And, uh, you know, they're bringing 200 people from all around the world. But, uh, the point I'm getting to though, is that the types of processes that you need to have in place, one to manage all these different portfolio companies, but then also as sort of like a central body, right? So like centralized HR processes, centralized finance, finance processes, uh, recruiting and, and hiring kind of processes. Um, and I think they've done a pretty good job of kind of having the best of both worlds where, um, I can only speak to for our company. I don't know to what extent it's like this for other portfolio companies. Pardon me. Um, where we we certainly feel like we have the autonomy and room to run and and to you know feel like a startup, um, whilst living within this broader thing, right? Um, and so we have the the benefit of sort of structures and there's you know HR processes. And, uh, you know, finance handles payroll. And so there's all that kind of stuff that, that normally you just don't expect in a startup, like, you know, onboarding and help in onboarding. Like, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? If you're in like a five person startup. Onboarding? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what exactly. <laughs> and so we have the, the benefit of, of some of that, of some of that structure. Um, and then also have the benefit of like, they kind of let us operate and, and do what we want to do. And we let them know what we're, we're up to and, um, you know, so far, uh, I, I haven't felt, um, overt pressure to, to do something that we weren't thinking we were going to do anyway. Um, and the, the other benefit is too, is like, these guys have a fountain of knowledge and experience in software and SaaS businesses. And then across the portfolio, we've got access to huge amounts of help, like both in, on an internal team basis. So like there's a marketing team and a product team. We need to get like a designer to help with product work, or we need, you know, we get a lot of help from the internal marketing team on optimizing pay-per-click and content and SEO. Um, but then across the different portfolio companies, um, 
you know, just reaching out to one of the other, it could be a founder or a CEO, one of the other companies, or it might just be like a head of some, you know, team. Like I, I reached out to the, the head of sales at uh, Pipeline. It's a, one of the other portfolio companies. They're a CRM company. I was asking him about sales and, and setting up, you know, we're thinking about, we don't have any outbound sales, but just trying to understand how are they doing that or, you know, support talking to someone like, you know, how can you, you know, manage support and all these different things. So it's just been huge, huge learning, uh, huge learning experience working with them. Um, and it hasn't felt like, you know, you need to suddenly there's this kind of, you know, um, the Borg coming in and assimilating you into, into <laughs> some sort of like process, you know, that's ultimately like enterprise or bureaucratic in nature. So we haven't, uh, we haven't felt that at all. Which is awesome. Yeah, I, I do like a good Star Trek reference, so thanks for that. Um, <laughs> but but on, honestly, this is something that I've noticed too as we transitioned our company to the, the private equity company that we sold to, just to see the interconnectedness of all the other portfolio companies in there and how easy it was for the developer that we hired to go and work on other projects if there was downtime, if they didn't have anything to do on ours. That was really interesting. And it's something that I was kind of I was kind of afraid of that as a founder of a business, I didn't want other people to interact with me. I wanted to build my own thing, right? Which is why we, we never hired. It was so bizarre. We, it was just Danielle, my, my co-founder and, and girlfriend and I together running this business, never really hiring anybody, having thousands of customers trying desperately to keep them under control. And then we sold the business and we transitioned it over. And all of a sudden there was this interconnected group of also hundreds of people just doing the work together much better than we would do it alone. It's such a, it was a humbling experience for me as an indie hacker to see yeah. that this was an option. And as you said, the, the co-founders of Wordful, they probably might also feel like this and probably they're probably right to feel like it in, in their state of how they want to build a business. Just in my perspective, it opened my eyes to that there is a way past the isolated indie hacker experience into a much more collaborative, bigger system, but that still allows you to act individually. That's really cool to see how well that worked for you. I guess it depends on the private equity company you work with, right? Not every yeah. company will give you that much leeway. Yeah, no, I think, and I think as you're saying that and, and, and kind of your experience there, that was a thought that entered my head is like, I have, you know, one, one data point and, um, it's, it's been a, a good experience. So I was, I was an employee, right? So my concern was more about like, oh, geez, like what's my work life gonna, gonna be like, um, but, uh, I, I can imagine like as a, as a founder, you know, being really worried about, you know, is someone going to mess with my baby kind yeah, of thing? Right. That's and, the thing. um, I, I, yeah. So I think like you'd, you'd want to be careful and, and do your due diligence if you're a, you know, an indie hacker looking to sell your SaaS product or whatever, um, to make sure that they're not going to just, you know, ruin what you've created or just like make that process, you know, stressful. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I, I think it's definitely something that that people should should consider. And as I've been in the machine now myself, I've been thinking like, oh, if I was ever to 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 do this, I'd want to stick around kind of as as long as I'm learning stuff because I've just learned a huge amount. You know, just kind of seeing the way these other companies are run, and um, I have access to a lot of sort of metric type information in a lot of these different companies and seeing the things they're doing and benchmarking and seeing like, oh, okay, like, you know, this is how much revenue they're making per employee. And okay, this is how much they're spending on their PPC. And okay, like the CRM industry is very different from like our industry. 
the customers are different and their go to market and kind of benchmarking these different things. And, um, it's just been, uh, you know, I think education, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure getting, you know, bought out is, is probably the primary driver. Um, but like just learning and, and personal growth as a, as an entrepreneur, I think is, is huge, is a huge reason to, to join one of these types of, um, groups. And, uh, yeah, def- definitely. I think it's a worthwhile option to look at for people. Yeah, I mean, getting bought out, that's the dream, like getting the to financial stability, security and beyond. Obviously, that's why most people or many people at least build the thing, why, why they get get into something as crazy and risky as entrepreneurship. But I think the learning along the way, in, in retrospect, I, I find that that was more important in, in, in a certain way. Obviously, financial security is a wonderful thing. And we got that too with selling Feedback Panda. But the, the learning along the way and keeping learning beyond, that is that is more important for for just to have a continued life of of achievement or just to, to feel fulfilled, have passion, have purpose, that still needs to happen. Because if you just stop working on the product, somebody buys it from you, now you have millions, what are you going to do? Are you just, yeah. You're not going to sit on the beach, right? That That is the, the illusion of, of entrepreneurship is that you're going to re- retract completely from life and just sip uh, daiquiris every day. That's not going to happen. You still need to, you, you have this passion. You, you can actually mobilize this passion. You want to keep mobilizing that passion. So it's, it's really cool to see that you are, you're getting this without the existential risk of uh, having somebody destroy your baby. That's really cool. Like yeah. for you, this is a great situation. And, and one thing that, that you said earlier that, that I find almost hilariously fitting is that you're kind of, you got referred into your spot for, for a company that does referral marketing or, or helps other people with referral systems for you to, to be constantly referred into a job is, is, is really, really fitting. I would like to talk about referrals a little bit because I, sure. from, from what I understand, your, your target market is indie hackers, people like us, people like me, people who are building businesses. And, um, I guess many people don't really understand the value of, of, um, a referral system or an affiliate system. And I would like to, I guess, give you the opportunity to convince me that my next SaaS business should definitely have either affiliates or a referral system or both. So try, try that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, uh, so first off, I'll, I'll make the distinction between, a customer referral program and an affiliate marketing program. Um, and this is good timing because I, I, just before I was on this call with you, I was actually just recording a course for, for this. And this was like the, you know, the slides I was going through. So it's, it's timely. Um, so customer referral program, the key distinction between the two is basically uh, a customer referral program. You're not going to be paying people a, a commission. Typically it means like you're paying them like a credit or something like that. Right. So um, imagine feedback Panda, if you had a, a customer referral program and, you know, customer A refers customer B to join, you'll give them like maybe a free month or something like that. And you would, you would credit them, um, you know, uh, so that like, th- there's no exchange of, of cash. There's no commission customers, you know, they, uh, obviously it varies depending on the industry, but they oftentimes can't be bothered with like signing up to your affiliate program and, and you know, getting paid out in PayPal and all this kind of stuff. Right. So that's customer referral program. Affiliate program is I'm an, uh, I'm an affiliate and I, I want to make money and I'm, you know, maybe I've got like a blog or I'm an influencer or something like that. I'm trying to monetize my audience. I'll go looking for affiliate programs to join where basically I can refer customers to these businesses and they're going to pay me in commissions, cold, hard cash, right? Um, rewardful enables both situations. Um, 
Customer referral programs is a little bit more complex in terms of the installation uh, and sort of building of it. Um, because there's more interaction in terms of, you know, doing a credit within Stripe's API and this kind of stuff, right? Um, affiliate programs is, um, much easier to, to set up within Rewardful and whoever you're going with. Um, and so in terms of why you'd want to use either of these, <clears throat> um, word of, word of mouth marketing is, is, uh, a very effective way, maybe the most effective way of getting customers. Um, anecdotally, even beside our uh, affiliate program, a huge amount of customers that Rewardful gets is people just talking about us on on Twitter. Someone asks, like, oh, "I want to set up a you know affiliate program. Who should I use?" And someone chimes in and says, "You know, check out Rewardful." Um, and so, just word of mouth is it's very powerful. And so, if you can incentivize people to refer customers to you, um, that's that's a great model, right? You're rewarding your existing customers for bringing in new customers. The new customers know that you know if this person is, is an existing customer, well, they're not going to refer me to something that they don't want to use. And so um, that social proof, you know, that that speaks volumes, right? Um, and then in terms of uh, affiliate programs, they work a little bit differently. The principles are the same in terms of word of mouth is valuable. Um, but, you know, probably people might be a little bit more guarded when an affiliate says, you know, check out this product. People, everyone knows, you know, influencers now like, you know, hashtag ad or, or, or whatever they've, you know, if they're doing an Instagram post or, you know, tweet or whatever. Um, but uh, it might not be as impactful in terms of, you know, people might be a little bit more skeptical if an influencer is recommending something. Um, but you understand this, you know, you're all, you're the, the, the Twitter audience guy and building a relationship, um, that, uh, an influencer or anyone with an audience, they have social capital with that audience and, um, they can, they can drive commercial behavior, right? Um, you know, recommend some sort of product if it's, if it's a fit in terms of, whatever their, you know, expertise is, right? Like if you were to become uh, an affiliate for Typefully, that's uh, a customer of ours, they've got an affiliate program, um, and you were to recommend, this is a, a Twitter tool, it's a perfect fit in terms of your audience, um, that would probably perform quite well, and you'd, you'd probably make some decent money off of it, and Typefully gets customers that are, you know, that are within their ideal customer profile and, and so forth, right? So it's, it's a really good, it's a good fit. In that perspective, um, in terms of some numbers that might be interesting, um, it varies greatly, obviously, from business to business, industry to industry. But typically what we'll see is for a business that is up and running and, and generating revenues already, typically you'll see anywhere from 5 to 15% added to your MRR. Um, in some cases, it could be higher, and then obviously, in some cases, it, it doesn't work for some for some businesses, or they don't make it work because they they don't put in the, the effort to to run the program. Um, and so, if if you're already up and running, it's just a great channel to to add to your to your marketing mix. Um, and it's just like leaving money on the table by not you know uh, operating a, an, an affiliate program. Obviously, there's a bit of work to do. And we can talk about that in a bit in terms of best practice and, and how to make it worth your while. Um, but it, it really is just like a, a great channel to add. Um, there's also another factor to take into consideration is launching a SaaS 
or any kind of launching any kind of business, right? Um, you, you've operated in in the the course world and info info product world, and that's that's an industry where we have we have a lot of customers in that space as well. That's a a space where a launch really works quite well, right? Like building a hype to something and then releasing it at launch and then you know, either you remove whatever the sort of promotion is or you remove it from the market. That's a, that's a common thing. Um, and so, uh, if you can launch with a group of affiliates behind you, you can expand your reach and, and get much more people into that sales process. Um, and we've, we've seen some ridiculous stories of people launching SaaS products. Um, the the case study it's actually on our on our website um, and it's it's something we've got if might, people might see our ads on on LinkedIn and YouTube for this particular case study uh, a customer of ours called Cometly and they launched I can't remember exactly when if it was twenty twenty or twenty nineteen um but they they launched and within their first week they hit fifty four thousand dollars in MRR and that was with one or two affiliates that were kind of perfectly placed within, um, within their market caveat, like, you know, disclaimer, et cetera, like results will vary and don't, don't expect, you know, not everyone should expect that it, it really comes down to the the quality of the affiliates. Um, we had another case, I can't say who they are because we haven't like, they haven't agreed to give us a, a case study and, and that kind of thing, but we had one customer back in March and they launched their business in, I think it was like the first or second week of March. And by the end of the month, they had hit $800,000 in sales from zero to 800,000 in like two or three weeks. Um, and then it like, it, it, it drastically kind of tapered off from that, you know, it was a real kind of classic launch where it's like peak and then it kind of trickles off to, you know, some kind of more normal uh, level. But like, there's, we've seen some insane stories in sort of in, in in terms of people launching both SaaS and infra product type businesses using their affiliate programs, and so yeah, that's that's kind of the pitch to like why you should set up an affiliate program. Um, it's it's not it's not easy to to have those type of results or even just to run an affiliate program, um, but it's not complicated. Like it, there's some pretty simple principles to to adhere to and. Um, but yeah, like any, any SaaS business that is in a product led, you know, self-serve SaaS type, type of model should, should be considering adding it, um, to their marketing mix for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you convinced me, you, you not only <laughs> did you convince me now, you also convinced me retroactively because we did have such a model for Feedback Panda and it, it was uh, an, an internal, like a customer referral system. We built, I built this myself because I, I didn't, didn't know any tools existed and it was horrible to build. So I'm glad that you actually offer something that I could just plug into Stripe. I would prefer yeah, that to everyone out there. Don't, don't, don't build, build it yourself. That. There's no, like a lot of. Don't stuff that's going on in the, in the background <laughs> yeah. and background processing well, and, and all this kind of stuff. You don't want to, yeah, that's a whole, it is a whole other product. Like it's, it's yeah. like, it's like building Stripe yourself and, and doing credit card charges all by yourself. It's just really not worth it. Like it, and then that's the thing. My indie hacker journey was full of lessons on what I should not have built in retrospect. Uh, this yeah. was, was this one was one of them. I, I did like, we did, um, I think like a, a two sided or maybe even three sided win, win, win situation. We gave people a free month if they uh, gave somebody or if they got somebody else onto the platform. So that's kind of, you know, I, I think three people you get a free month because we wanted to have a multiple 
multiplier in there. And then each of these people that came on also got their first month for free as a, as a double sided okay. incentive. That was a, and we can talk about these specifics uh, in a second. I just, just want to get back to what you were saying about SaaS businesses launching with an affiliate system, which is the other side of, of what you offer. I've seen this extremely done extremely successfully in several products over, over the last couple of weeks and months. In fact, I, over the last couple of weeks, I talked to two indie hackers on this podcast. One of them is Tony Dean, who had launched Black okay. Magic, which is also a yeah. Twitter tool with an affiliate system, and it was quite successful. And I think just last week, for, uh, you know, on, on this show, I talked to Luis Pereira, who launched AudioPen, which is um, a ChatGPT-based audio to summary conversion tool. That's a very basic way of describing it. It's really cool. Got to product of the day, second product of the week, and fourth product of the month on Product Hunt. Got a lot cool. of initial success. Also launched with an affiliate system and made significant cash just from that by having people be affiliates that are really aligned with his audience. And that's something I want to talk to you about because uh, I have a horror story here. <laughs> let's, let's just, maybe, maybe that's a bit uh, strong of a term, but earlier today I got an email by a company that I have never heard of before. And they just told me how, re how they would love for me to be an affiliate for their product. Just click here and you become part of my affiliate system. That was kind of their pitch in that email. And I was looking at that email and I was thinking, hmm, like, I, I would have probably been interested in this company if they hadn't just tried to push me into the role of an affiliate. So I think there are ways to do it really well. I'm looking at Lewis and I'm looking at Tony right, and how they started their, their journey with the affiliate system and ways to do it not well at all, which seems to be a cold email sent to a massive amount of people asking them to join the affiliate system. So how do you find the right people? as a SaaS entrepreneur who wants to have affiliates to send this to without breaking trust. Like that, that's what happened to me today in that email. I don't trust this company. They just want to make money off me and my reach. That's how I felt. So I'm not going to go at it. I'm not going to go for that. How on the other side, as a founder, how do I get the right people and how do I build trust with people so that they become reliable and reliable and trustworthy affiliates? Yeah. Um, so the first thing that springs to mind is is uh, an important, I guess, um, in, in terms of managing expectations uh, and uh, around affiliates and, and your affiliate program. Um, you know, everyone's heard of the the eighty twenty rule, right? So twenty percent of your results will come from eighty percent of your your efforts or inputs, right? This applies in affiliate marketing, but it's more extreme. It's more like ninety nine one. Like one percent of your affiliates will drive ninety percent, ninety nine percent of your results, right? So, um, the the good news with this is it means you don't need a lot of affiliates to see actual results if you can find the right affiliates. Um, and so it's following this kind of classic power law, right? Or like where it's you've got you know huge amount of results from a small number of people, and then kind of this long tail. The long tail is valuable. Like there's there's value to be had there, and um, uh, I, I would say though, like it, it's probably more, more worth investing in like the, these more kind of power or, or higher influence type affiliates. That's where the, the value really is. Um, and it really is just about trying to build relationships with these people. Right. Um, so the, the advice I, I commonly give to people is, um, first step up, first step is you need to identify your ideal affiliate profile. So in marketing and sales, we talk about like your ideal customer profile, right? Like who's the ideal customer you want to go after? 
Um, for us, Indie Hacker is is one of our two sort of main ICPs, ideal customer profiles. And so for an ideal affiliate profile, you got to figure out, okay, for my product, the, the market that I'm in, who are the people that my customers are engaging with, right? And so that example I gave earlier of, of Typefully and you, that's probably like a pretty good, pretty good fit in terms of, in terms of audience, right? Um, and so like, if I was, if I was Typefully, what I would do is, um, first step is identify that ideal profile. Second step is uh, start doing research to put together a list of people that fit in within this, this profile. Um, <clears throat> what I've done in, in the past is I've gone to places like Upwork or Fiverr and get them to do the, the research. Cause it's, it's kind of, it's time intensive. And if you've got the budget for it, you can find, you know, virtual assistants that are quite affordable and, um, you know, put together a, a spreadsheet with all the different sort of data points you're trying to find from about these people. So like, you know, name, website, email address, uh, Twitter handle, number of followers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And do like 10 of them and then go to Upwork and say, okay, I want you to find me as many more of these people as possible. Here's kind of the, the, the profile I'm looking for. Um, go research for two hours and then come back to me and show me what you've got. Look at what they've got, you know, give your feedback to kind of refine their search and then send them back at it and, you know, get them to re research as many as they can find or as, as many as you can you know, afford within your budget. And now you've got your, your list of people that you're going to you're going to reach out to. Then the next step is the, the outbound outreach process. Um, and this is this is where you want to be really careful. Like you don't you don't want even if if you are doing uh, cold email. There's a way to do cold email that feels better and less greasy than than other ways, right? Um, and the way I would I would and I'm no cold email expert, but the way I would categorize it is like there's certain elements of the outreach you're going to do that are somewhat formulaic, and then other elements of it that are going to be personalized. Um, and so you you got to kind of figure out like what what those what those are, right? And actually do a little bit of research on all of these different people that you're planning to reach out to. Um, and the bigger the audience is for these people you're reaching out, the more time you're going to want to spend to to try and win them over. And so if I was trying to sell some, if I was typefully and I was trying to recruit you as an affiliate, I'd be like, OK, like this guy is like perfect in terms of audience match and, and relevance. So like. Like. It, maybe we just take it off of the cold email and we try to build that relationship in a in a different way, right? And actually start going to try and, and engage with them. Um, you know, follow them on on Twitter and start like, you know, your your courses uh, talk about like how to build these relationships with with people, right? Um, you know, try not to be quite so um, don't be quite so transparent in your transactionalness, right? Like actually try and, and build relationships with partners. Cause that's what you're doing. You're trying to build, you're trying to build partnerships and it's, it's worth the time to do that with, with people that can drive those results. You know, that 99, one rule I talked about, like, okay, those people that are in that 1%, like take the time to, to build those relationships, look at it as more of like a partnership as opposed to just this very transactional affiliate type relationship. One of the things, one of the, the questions that we get from a lot of prospective customers is, do you guys have a network? 
And so there's a lot of affiliate networks out there where they do both the affiliate affiliate tracking and, and management, as well as they've got a network of affiliates. So you think back in the day, like ClickBank and Commission Junction and, and these different places where um, it's more of this marketplace of products and, and affiliates. And so we have a lot of prospective customers who come to us and say like, oh, do you have a network? Oh, how am I going to find affiliates? And in that, there's there's this misconception. There's, there's this false assumption that the value in it, value is in like these transactional relationships. Oh, people will find me on people will find me on the network and they'll come and promote my product. Um, that is true. Like people will find you and and maybe they'll sign up for your program, um, but they might not be the people that you want to be promoting your product. They might be promoting your product in a way that you don't like. Um, you don't know them. They're totally they're totally faceless. Um, and there's all sorts of, uh, kind of, uh, gaming that people can, can kind of do that you don't want them to do. And so the, the quality of affiliates you get from these networks is, is not like, you're not going to, you're not going to find Arvid on one of these networks, right? Like the way you're going to find Arvid as a partner is through trying to actually build a relationship with them, right? Like, um, you know, any like market that you're in, you're in a community, right? Um, I, I come back to this this kind of analogy in my head over and over and over again when it comes to business. It, it's it's like um, it's like in sports. Now, and for people who who who've uh, played competitive sports, will get this. Um, where you know if you're in a if you're in a uh, a sport you're competing in, even though there you got all your opponents there that are in this in this community, you're all part of the same community. You go to the same tournaments or the same leagues or whatever, and you see each other day in, day out, and you become friends with these people, even though they're, they're your competitors. Um, and uh, a market is it's quite similar. All the people that are operating in this market, it's the same sort of thing. It's a, it's a community. And um, the, the people who are very transactional and are just coming into a market because they want to make money. The people who've been in that community forever, forever, and are kind of the, the mainstays and the, the sort of stayed members of the community, they, they will just, they'll sniff these people out and just like, in a, in a heartbeat. And they'll just be like, okay, like I'm going to stay away from, from those people because like, like they're not good actors within, within this space. And so this email you got, it gave you that feeling of like, Oh, here's an interloper. You know, this this person's a blow-in. They're not part of my community. Otherwise, like they wouldn't have engaged with me in this way. And you can kind of sniff that out. And so, if you're just going to be really transactional and just like send, spam a bunch of people and not put any research into into who they are and uh, in your out, outreach, they're going to smell that out, right? And so, at least make the effort to try and make them feel like, you know, um, you're you're worth my worth my time. Um, that's that's the way that I would go and try and and uh, the way I would think about it, you know, position it in your mind that I'm trying to build relationships with people um, for those for those really kind of, you know, more high, high um, influence type of partners. And then there's other kind of more passive ways that you can get just sort of the the, you know, the generic people coming and um, joining your program. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I think the focus on being more relational than transactional, even though it is about transactions in the end, like an affiliate is a sale of a thing, right? That is in itself a transaction, but how it comes to be, that is relational. And I think that making making that differentiation is is core uh, at the core of make building these kind of long term sales relationships. In the end, it's it's funny, like you you want transactions and you have to be the least 
possible transactional to get there. It's uh, just an interesting um, observation. And the community-centric approach is also something that I've personally felt. But in the in the Twitter course space, for example, like you, you mentioned the course that I have, I compete with a lot of people who talk about building audiences on Twitter, but we all know each other. And there, there was a moment when Daniel Vassallo, the, the, the guy who has one of the biggest Twitter courses out there, when I was talking to him a lot after recording mine and I was saying, Hey, Daniel, I'm going to, I'm going to compete with you a little bit on this. I hope you don't mind. And he, and, and I said that in a Twitter DM because we are connected and we talk all the time. And he said, Hey, I said what I want to say. Now you say what you want to say. And now we are both affiliates of each other on Gumroad. Like he recommends mine, I recommend his. In my course materials, I list like three or four different Twitter courses by other people because I know they list mine. Because we all know that in this space, the more we, we can combine our knowledge, the better it will be for the person taking it in. It's a very community-centric approach. And just trying to transact in there, that would not fly. So the perfect description of that space. Yeah, that's very, that's very common in the info product space to, to have kind of this, um, a much less sort of com- combative or, or competitive type of environment. Obviously, you know, if you're looking for like a social media management tool, you only need one. So there's not that same kind of opportunity. Um, but I, I was talking to our, our mutual friend, Andrew, uh, McIntosh last, uh, week. And the analogy I, I gave to him around this idea was like a nightclub district. And there's some mark, there's some markets where it's, it's like a nightclub district where you don't want to go to the bar that has no other bars around it. You want to go to the nightclub district and you go to a bar there and you spend an hour and then you go to the next bar and, you know, people bar hop. Info products are, are very much like that, right? Where like, you know, you've, you said one thing and then Danny said another thing and Justin Jackson says another thing or, or whatever, right? And um, just because you take one course doesn't mean it doesn't preclude you from taking another course because they have different perspectives on things and different things that you can learn. So you see a lot of people in the info, info product space that they'll promote each other's, you know, at base value looks like directly competing products, but they'll promote each other. Yeah, interesting point though. I think you 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 just pointed out effectively that people who have a one-time sale have no problem having somebody else have a one-time sale. But the moment you move into a recurring revenue system where you need customer retention, you are less interested in giving the alternative product or the, even the information True. about the alternative product to your customers. Yeah. So yep. as you as you have a lot of indie hackers in as a customer, does that raise any special challenges around that particular kind of? behavior as well um no not that nothing that comes to mind the, the only um sort of i guess downside i i've ever really encountered if you want to call it, it it's a double-edged sword in dealing with the indie hacker indie hacker community is um they're incredibly vocal right mm-hmm. and so when when <laughs> yeah. they like you it, they're you know incredibly vocal and well, like we get lots, like I said at the top of the call, like I, we get a lot of word of mouth. Um, and that's hugely beneficial for us. I would say it's probably, it's a difficult one to actually do attribution to, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it is probably, you know, our largest, if, or at least one of our largest sources of customers. The other side of that sort is when things go wrong or people are frustrated and they take to, take to, to Twitter. Um, then you, you deal with the wrath of that on, on the other side where we had a thing recently about, um, uh, affiliate fraud and basically what people were doing was, um, 
using affiliate programs to bid on brand terms on Google. And this is one of those things to this idea of like, you know, getting, you know, high quality affiliates versus kind of transactional affiliates. And this is something a transactional affiliate is going to do. They don't care about you. They just want to make money. And a way to do that is to bid on their brand terms, right? And so let's say like Feedback Panda, you would imagine if you Google Feedback Panda, that's the first result in Google. You're going to have the number one result for your brand term. And so why would you bid on your own brand term? You're already at the top of Google. And so an affiliate will, will come in and they'll join your affiliate program and then bid on your brand term. And they rank above your organic result and people will sign up through that. And so they're then getting a cut. They're getting like 20 or 30%, depending on what your commission rate is of all those sales. And the math tends to work because it's, it's cheap to bid on those brand terms because nobody else is bidding on those brand terms. Um, anyways, this, this, there was kind of uh, a rash of, of this happening across our customer base and people took to Twitter, uh, to complain about this and, um, got a, got a lot of, a, a lot of attention because there was some sort of big named indie hackers that were, were tweeting about this. Um, the upshot of that is, you know, we, we get ideas for new features for fraud protection and things like that, that, right. that we're working on and, and, um, sort of hacks that people can do to, to protect themselves against this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's the only thing I've seen that, you know, it's kind of that double-edged sort of, of dealing in the, uh, the indie hacker space. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And, and this is, this is a problem, right? Like the, 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 the what is it, poaching or cannibalizing of SEO rankings like that? Yeah. I mean, that can yeah, cost sure a lot of money term, if you have yeah. to fight it. Like if you, if you want to yeah. fight that as an indie hacker, you need to rank higher than those people who would make money on it. It's, it's kind of, it's bizarre because you're losing money on having to pay for clicks, right? So that, that is a, Oh, wow. Yeah, there, there's some there we've discovered like, and we give this as a tip to people, but there's some easy ways to, to combat this. Um, but for people, for people who weren't aware of it, you know, it's, it's definitely something that, uh, that they got to be aware of. And again, like that's why you want to try and find those, those high value partners. Cause like that, you yeah. wouldn't do that, you know what I mean? To, to someone that you have like an actual relationship with. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah, trust is really at the at the center of all this, right? Like if you if you the, the moment the moment you turn it into a mere transaction and it's quantifiable, and you, you, somebody makes maybe a bit less but more reliable money by putting their name or their link in front of your actual name, you have a problem. And if you can't trust people not to do this, wow, then then you have an actual problem. Well, um, th that is. That is an interesting insight into a field that I personally nev have never really professionally used any tools in. Like I said, I built all of this myself. I'm really happy that you shared all of these, these insights into particularly affiliate marketing because I am both a SaaS founder and a info product owner. And to see the slight differences between what a recurring revenue business needs and what a info product business needs, that is really, really helpful. Thank you so much for coming on the show here today and, and sharing all of these insights uh, with me and and my viewers slash listeners. Um, where do you want people to go and find out more about you and Rewardful? Uh, yeah, so if sure, if you want to learn more about me, you can come and follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Emmett Gibney. Uh, or if you live on LinkedIn, if that's your world, then uh, you can come find me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, just search me, Emmett Gibney. Um, and then for Rewardful, uh, you visit us at rewardful.com if you want to come and, and check, check out our product and, um, uh, and sign up. We have a 14 day free trial. Um, so if you want to try us out as a, as a SaaS business, um, and then, uh, 
Yeah, we're on we're on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn as well. I think I think on Twitter we're at Get Rewardful, um, and then uh, yeah, come and come and consume our content, and we'll do our best to, to educate you on on how to set up uh, an affiliate program. Yeah, that that is a good idea. I'm gonna totally unironically put an affiliate link to Rewardful into the show Do notes. Of Join this the podcast. affiliate program. Yeah, yeah, I you, would love you've to. Earned it. it with your audience. Yeah, <laughs> sweetie, nice. Thank you so much for being on the show today. That was a wonderful conversation. Thanks, Emmett. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Emmett talked about taking over after the founders left. Let's look at this from the other side. If you're a founder and you feel like you're done with the business, but you want to turn it into money instead of just closing it down, well, there's always the option of an acquisition. That's what happened to the people who ran Rewardful, right? And that is, I think, what can also happen for you. That's where our sponsor, Acquire.com, can help. Imagine this situation. You're a founder who's built a really solid SaaS product. You acquired customers, and the whole thing is generating consistent monthly revenue. The problem is that you're not growing for whatever reason. Right? Maybe lack of focus or lack of skill or just plain lack of interest, and you feel stuck. What should you do? Well, the story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down and somehow reignited that fire within. You got past yourself and the cliches and you started working on rather than just in the business. You start building this audience you always wanted to build and you move out of your comfort zone and start sales and marketing, this scary stuff. And six months down the road, you've tripled your revenue. Reality, unfortunately, isn't as simple. Situations may be different for every founder who's facing this crossroad, and too many times, the story ends up being one of inaction and stagnation until the business becomes less valuable, which is bad, or worse, worthless, and that is really bad. So if you find yourself here, or your story is likely headed down a similar road, I offer you a third option. Consider selling your business on Acquire.com. Capitalizing on the value of your time is a pretty smart move, and Acquire.com is free to list. They've helped hundreds of founders already. Go to try.acquire.com slash Arvid and see for yourself if this is the right option for you at this time. It doesn't hurt to check. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder today. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-V-I-D-K-A-H-L, and you'll find my books on my Twitter course there as well. If Twitter is still around, then, you know, find me on Twitter. If you want to support me outside of that, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast in your podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It really makes a massive difference to show this show to more people. Any of the things that I just mentioned will help me. So thanks for listening. Thanks for taking action. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.